0: You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening. Welcome to the Jewish Matters podcast. And tonight in our Great Jews series, we're going to be speaking about Rav Shlomo Garin, the first chief rabbi of the IDF, of the Israel Defense Forces. And Rabbi Shlomo Garin's life really embodied Uh, the beginnings of Zionism. He grew up on a farm in the Galil after his family made Aliyah, and they were farmers. Then he moved to Jerusalem, uh, became a great Torah scholar, child prodigy, really, became the first chief rabbi of the Israel Defense Forces right in 1948 before the state, and then became known to be the rabbi who was there at the liberation of the Kotel, blowing the shofar, and then in Hebron as well. So he spanned from before the state until really 1967, and then became the chief rabbi of Israel. So let's start with his childhood. He was born and grew up in Poland. His family were Gerer Hasidim. But his father, who was a very learned scholar, however, was a businessman and a successful businessman. He had a factory, and uh, when they moved to, to uh, Warsaw, they particularly, he flourished, and um, their home was a Zionist home, which wasn't that common, but wasn't totally rare that you should have a home of Hasidim, very religious, but yet Zionist at the same time. We see how Zionist they were, how passionate they were about it. The story was that his mother went to a, a meeting about, of an organization about the new settlements developing in Israel. This would have been in the uh, 1920s. And um, they talked about the struggle to build the Jewish uh, Yishuv there. And she came home without her jewelry, except for her wedding band. And the story was that upon hearing the needs of the community in Israel, she sold her jewelry. And her husband said, you've done such a big mitzvah. I'll want to buy you jewelry that it was even nicer than that which you had. And so a number of years later, sure enough, he sold the factory and they made plans to make Aliyah. Now he went to the Ger Rebbe, as Hasidim will do, to get uh, his blessing. And the Ger Rebbe said, how are you going to survive there? How are you going to provide for yourself? And uh, the meeting was over. The Ger Rebbe's attendant said, that means the Ger is saying you should not make Aliyah. And so he was about to drop the project. His wife said his, uh, that uh, I have a Rebbe too. And so she went to her Rebbe. And um, he said, gave her a bracha and said, uh, you know, you should go with blessings. And so they made Aliyah. So we see also the strength of his mother and the uh, strong engaged role in leading the family of the women of the home. Uh, they made Aliyah with a Garin, with a, a group of Yablona Chassidim, And they established a town called Kfar Hasidim. And Kfar Chassidim became very renowned because here were ultra-Orthodox Jews with the paeus, the side curls, the beards, uh, the traditional garb on Shabbat, the long coat, and they were working the land. So much so that Chaim Weitzman, Baron Herzog, and Rev Cook all visited uh, Kfar Chassidim. And um, uh, they had bought land with the uh, revenue from the factory, but upon arriving, they found that the land was not uh, workable and not livable. It was a swamp. And so in addition to working the land that they were apportioned, his father worked on draining the swamps as well, which eventually he would succeed. However, uh, the dilemma came that uh, the, uh, well, before we even get to that, uh, as they were draining the land, they lived in tents. And the stories were uh, that this was all very trying, of course, one night, it was a terrible storm Uh, The rain blew down the tents. Everything was all over the place. And what did the Hasidim do? They got up. They started singing and dancing. And they were dancing the rest of the night. That's how they kept warm. And that's how they kept up their spirits. They wouldn't let anything crush their spirit and their love for the land of Israel. And um, uh, Rabbi Geranchik, which was their name, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Garanshik said, "I will remember that night as long as I live. How the joy never left from the Hasidim's hearts. Uh, in the huts, they had to put bowls under the uh, the legs of their beds, full of water, so that the scorpions wouldn't climb up onto the beds and bite them. And Garanshik was an unruly child. He uh, preferred to be out in the fields than in the classroom. He would get into fights with the local Bedouin." fighting them off to uh, protect the land, and uh, he was a a very unruly kid, but he said that uh, the suffering and the connection to the soil was imbued in him and gave him a love of the land. His mother was renowned for baking pita bread. She dug a hole, put rocks in it, and this pita bread, Rav Chaim Weitzman, when he visited, tasted it and talked about how great it was. But really, life was very difficult. And they survived by, um, before the holidays, their family from the United States would send $10 to the family. And that really uh, kept them going. But unfortunately, the cooperative through which they had bought the land went bust. So in effect, it meant they lost their land. The other Hasidim, who weren't as accustomed to hard work, were uh, really broken. Uh, the Ko- Koznitz Hasidim, who were from the countryside, actually were already farmers, and they survived in Hasidim. But over half of the Hasidim went back, um, and they reached the end of their resources. So his business associates in Poland offered uh, his father to uh, uh, to extend a loan to rebuild a new factory and that they would guarantee him business from the factory. His father went to his mother, the parents had made the aliyah as well, the grandparents, and she said that uh, we will live here or we will die here. If we live, we will live in the land of Israel. If we die, we'll be buried on the holy land. And she refused. She said, we're staying here. And that strong will is what saved their lives because Uh, None of their family survived the Holocaust, and um, uh, undoubtedly they they would not have had they gone back. But given the circumstances, they wound up moving to Jerusalem. And this really gave uh, the young Shlomo Goranchik the opportunity to start learning Torah. The story was that he went to the Kotel, and at the Kotel, he was overwhelmed by a feeling, by the presence of the Shekhinah, by the feeling of the divine presence at the Kotel, and by the feeling that he wanted to dedicate his life to to God. And that's where he started learning more seriously. And his life completely changed from the unruly rowdy kid uh, to the Torah scholar. And he quickly adopted himself to that, to the point where a couple of years later, Uh, when he was ready to go to yeshiva, his father brought him to the Chevron Yeshiva, one of the great Talmudic academies of the time. And uh, the head of the school said, you know, we're not a kindergarten here. What do you want me to do with this kid? The father said, just test him. And sure enough, he uh, had incredible knowledge, memory, comprehension of the Talmud at 11 years old. He was the only child to be bar mitzvahed in the yeshiva, and um, showed great promise and intellectual activity. He wound up publishing his first book at the age of 16, which is unprecedented for a Torah scholar. And he was given rabbinic ordination at the age of 17. And he would go through at least 12 pages, sometimes 24 pages of Talmud a day, knew it all. He was the first one in the study hall the last one out at night, slept very little, and really his whole life was Torah. Um, uh, his family and he were fortunate enough to have several uh, sponsors, uh, one of them who set him up in his house with a Beit Midrash, with a study hall. He built a study hall in his house, he wanted someone studying there, and he uh, he asked uh a young Shlomo, if he would go study there, he said, as long as you provide me with every book, whatever books I want. He said, it's a deal. The books were shipped there and he sat and studied there. He also, uh, Chaim Bialik, uh, the Yiddishist poet, the uh, Hebrew poet, uh, developed a liking to him and also sponsored his book and a, other, and a vacation. And he took a vacation in the Carmel in the mountains near Haifa. And that's where he first met Rabbi Avraham Yitzchak Cook, the first chief rabbi of the Yeshuv, of uh, the Jewish uh, community in Palestine. And Rabbi Cook was a great saintly individual, also with a very broad uh, perspective. You can listen to the whole podcast on him and was unique in terms of being part of the ultra-Orthodox religious community and yet very pro-Zionist and very linked to the uh, secular Zionists and uh, made an effort to go out and meet them and to bring his message to them. And Rabbi Gorin very much identified with this. But he also saw in him the great piety. The story was that at the inauguration of the eighth Chaim Yeshiva, uh, he was the last to speak. As he got up to speak, one of the uh, zealots who was anti-Zionist Yelled him down, would not let him speak. The British police came and arrested him, took this rabbi away, and Rabbi Cook said, I will not continue my speech until you let him go free. He had been hounded, and yet he uh, was concerned for this person who was now in prison. And so, um, in his model as a rabbi, as a thinker, as a pious figure, all of this impressed Rabbi Gorin very much. And he also, following Rav Cook's path of openness to greater knowledge, he went to Hebrew University. And the rabbis in the yeshiva were not happy with it, but when he was in the university, he continued going to the yeshiva as well and would get his 12 pages of Talmud a day covered. In, In Hebrew University, he would not study Jewish studies, but he studied... Philosophy, um, science, liberal arts. He wound up marrying the one of the greatest students, the primary student of Rav Cook, the Nazir Rav David Cohen's daughter, Tzivia, uh, and uh, she. Uh, we will see. She was with him in all of his endeavors, and all of his tribulations. So. Uh, his father in law, just to understand who he was, uh, he took upon him the customs of Nazirut, of not cutting his hair. And he was a, also a great saintly figure. The story is when the British came in to search his house looking for uh, people in the underground, uh, the British officer stared at him, was face to face with him with the piles of books and his hair and the beard and the saintly eyes, and they say that he fainted. And he said, that uh, he thought he saw an apparition of you know who, of uh, Jesus. So uh, this is who his father-in-law was. Now, when the uh, siege of Jerusalem began in 1947, even before the state of Israel, uh, they were being attacked and he wanted to help defend the city. And they told him as a rabbi, you're exempt from doing military duty. And he spoke to his wife and he said to her, they are going to protect our lives and die defending us. I have to enlist and participate in defending Jerusalem. And she agreed, she was supportive of it. And though what he agreed to was that he would continue his studies all day and he would spend the night on guard duty. When he slept, I don't know, but guard duty meant rain or shine uh, in in the pouring rain. Sometimes he didn't have a coat but he had a very strong constitution. They would give him a gun, but they told him, you can't shoot. Um, so he would only shoot once every two hours just to let the Arabs know that he was there. And the gun didn't have a cartridge, he had to load each bullet on its own. And um, then he uh, got promoted to a machine gun placement, uh, which was with a, group of, a battalion of other soldiers, and many of them were religious, it was Jerusalem, and he was set up a minion. started giving Torah classes. Um, as the fighting went on, he got recruited to the underground. Uh, they started having meetings in his home, and he hid weapons in the home, and he worked on the printing press. That was his main uh, first for the Haganah, and then he joined the Lehi, uh, one of the other underground organizations, one of the more extreme ones, although he didn't always endorse all of their uh, violent uh, actions. And their home was searched frequently, but they had a room dug into the side of the mountain behind the apartment. Had they been caught, he and his wife could have been arrested, and some were actually deported to Africa. So they were both putting themselves on the line uh, for the uh, fight for Jewish independence and for Jewish self-defense. Now, it was uh, before Passover, and the chief rabbi, Rabbi Chaim Herzog, uh, sorry, Rabbi Yitzhak Herzog, uh, he uh, pushed Rabbi Gorin to be appointed the head rabbi of the idea, of the Israel, of the army. Uh, at that point it was not the army, yet. it was the defensive uh, platoons, and he refused three times. Finally, it was before Passover, and Rabbi Herzog said to him, if you don't go and do this, then they're not going to be Passover seders, there's not going to be kosher food in the army for Passover. And so he acceded, he agreed to, to start playing this function, he got yeshiva students to volunteer kosher 36 kitchens and to start setting up Passover Seder. Now they didn't have enough matzah uh, in Jerusalem, which was under siege. And uh, the governor of Jerusalem was gonna send the matzah to the religious people in Jerusalem. And Rabbi Goran said, no, this is the first time in thousands of years, we have a Jewish army defending a Jewish state and they have to eat matzah. How are they going to have the merit liberate Jerusalem without eating matzah. And so the matzah was divided up. The governor didn't agree. He broke into the warehouse, took the matzah, and distributed it. Uh, He also was always very resourceful. He found out one of the monasteries grew lettuce in their courtyard. He bought all the lettuce and used that for the seder. And the yeshiva students went from one post to another, running sederim uh, under the under the danger of sniper and mortar fire, uh, Ben-Gurion came to Jerusalem, to the main Schneller base, and it was so crowded that everyone had to stand, and to get uh, Ben-Gurion out, they had to pass him over their heads. There was no room to move. And Ben-Gurion actually said these words of the first uh, Passover Seder in a free state um, for the Jewish people that we had celebrated in 2000 years. And the British left behind. Now, Rabbi Gorin had many other tasks which came his way, as uh, de facto uh, head of the IDF, Rabbi of the IDF. Uh, one was the kosher kitch- koshering the kitchens. Uh, they didn't even have enough fuel. They koshered pots with gasoline, yet to use uh, leniencies and find innovative ways in wartime. Uh, the British had left behind all of this uh, packaged beef, which wasn't kosher, obviously. So he had to decide, what do we do? The soldiers uh, needed strength to fight. But he ruled that, no, the soldiers could not eat the meat. They had to be eating kosher. Uh, so the meat was used for the old and for the infirm. Even though Maimonides says, well, when you go out to war, you can eat whatever's there. But this was on home turf. Rabbi Gorin once again felt that uh, the inception of a Jewish army should start off a good. Questions of Shabbat, what do you do with an army on Shabbat? So obviously, uh, the defense posts, uh, if there was an attack or if there was an offensive to be launched strategically, uh, the uh, danger to life overrides the Shabbat and one defends oneself. But uh, the precedent was that training maneuvers would not be done on Shabbat, only the necessary was done the weapons development department asked him, what do we do? And he said, you are allowed to continue working on Shabbat because the sooner you develop the weapons, uh, the sooner we'll be able to save lives. and protect lives." Uh, many of the at the uh, siege of Jerusalem was long and arduous. The food was running out. Uh, the soldiers didn't have ammunition. And many of the leaders, Zionist and religious, uh, were felt like they should call for a surrender to the United Nations. Uh, Jerusalem under the partition plan was to be internationalized. And they felt that rather than avoid a slaughter, we should internationalize Jerusalem and hand it over to the UN. Rabbi Gorin was aghast. And he believed that most of the residents of Jerusalem did not want to do this. And they were adamant about holding out. And so he, um, he insisted uh, he went to the general, Shaltiel, and asked him what the prognosis was. And the general told him, ah, it's interesting you come now. We just got intelligence that 11 o'clock on Saturday morning, the Jordanian tanks will be coming into Jerusalem. They'll be launching their tank offensive. They had a battalion of tanks from the British who um, had trained the Jordanian Legion. And they realized that there was no hope to, for victory against the tanks, unless they jug trenches. Now, there were no able-bodied men left around to dig trenches, except the yeshiva students. The chief rabbi Herzog said, I will write a letter. But Rabbi Goran knew that these students were not going to follow the chief rabbi. They were part of the ultra-Orthodox community. So he went to one of the leaders, he told him the, the situation, and the leader would not write him a letter telling the yeshiva students to go work on the Shabbat. The d- trenches had to be dug in the dark Friday night. And um, uh, so Rabbi Goran went himself into the yeshiva, spoke to the students. He wanted telling 200 students to come at night and they were gonna start digging. It turned out a thousand yeshiva students showed up. They successfully dug the trenches and 11 o'clock in the morning, the next morning, sure enough, the intelligence was right. The tank came rolling in right next to the old city up the hill um, and they fell into the trenches, the first two, a third one fell on top of those and they backed off. And this was one of the key battles to help secure Jerusalem. But this was typical of Rabbi Goren. He didn't just see himself as a religious functionary. He saw himself as an actively engaged member of the IDF. It shows his original thinking and his problem-solving and doing whatever needed to be done. Now, tragically, the old city fell, as we know, in 1948. Uh, The Jewish quarter was evacuated, and Rabbi Goran spent all day finding homes for the Jews evacuated. And he himself took, and his wife took, three rabbis into their home for 10 days until a place could be found. And we see that the great self-sacrifice of a leader on a personal level, the care for individuals—this is the makings of a great Torah personality. So, in June, a ceasefire was called, and Gorin went to uh, Rikunshik went to meet David Ben Gurion, the Prime Minister of Israel. The state had just been formed and called, and Ben Gurion appointed as Prime Minister. And interestingly enough, even though Ben Gurion was totally not religious, Um, but he was a traditionalist and they saw that they had similar views on things. Uh, Ben-Gurion respected him uh, because he felt that Gorin had a very wide broad view on the world and on the Jewish people and that the army, the religion army was there for the entire people, not just for the religious soldiers, And Gorin had a respect for Ben-Gurion because Ben-Gurion, his love and his dedication to Zionism and to the Jewish people, even if it did not extend to Torah. But remember, Ben-Gurion is the one who set the precedent that yeshiva students should be exempt from fighting, even though, as we know, Rabbi Gorin did not exempt himself. And so um, their agreement was, and they were both agreement on this, that the rabbi and the religious aspects of a Jewish army were there for all the soldiers. There had been religious battalions, and most of the rabbis and most of the generals argued that the religious battalions will have kosher and Shabbat and everything they need, and the rest of the army can do what they want. Ben-Gurion and Goran both felt that no, the army needs to be a Jewish army. That means, means, There need to be religious standards and Jewish life for the entire army. Every kitchen had to be kosher. Every base had a synagogue for services, although Rabbi Goren felt very strongly, unlike the British army, that religious services should not be forced, should not be compulsory. But uh, he did believe that, um, uh, that it had to extend to the whole army and really cut two ways because the religious soldiers would go into battalions with non-religious and that would shake their level of religiosity. On the other hand, they touched many non-religious soldiers by having a religious presence. So that was the agreed to policy. Uh, Goranchik ben Gurion was adamant that the leaders of his new government changed their European names to uh, more modern Israeli Hebrew names. The Goranschik became Goran. Um, and uh, later, he would uh, he made him into a lieutenant colonel, and Goran's office was put right next to Ben-Gurion's, very close to him, and showing that he said, I want you to report directly to my chief of staff and chief of staff of the army. You have a direct line if any problems come. Later on, Ben Rav Goran would be attacked by the religious factions because they wanted to control the appointments of the positions of rabbis in the army. And they said he was out for his own job, for his own power. Numerous times he tried to uh to quit. And Ben Gurion would not let him resign from his position. But he got a lot of uh, a lot of heartache from it as well. He was drawn into politics, although he remained above it and did not. allow allow himself to get drunk. So, uh, other Jewish matters that came up in the army, fasting on Yom Kippur. The ruling was that, of course, soldiers fighting would not be fasting on Yom Kippur. Uh, They could if they wanted and they felt that their energy would be the same. But the kitchens were closed on the bases and those on guard duty were allowed to fast. And today, today, Over 65% of the population of Israel fasts in some manner. And very possible that the impact of the army uh, has upon that. So one of the main preoccupations, functions that Rabbi Gorin had to have in the army, especially once the fighting started and the war started, was taking care of fallen soldiers and the rulings for Agunot. Now, um, This meant that he had to be involved hands-on in the retrieving of the dead. Uh, He set up Hebre Kaddisha. Every community has a group of lay volunteers to help with uh, preparing bodies for burial. He set them up within the army as well. And to the point where, and he was always involved himself directly. In 1949, after the war, he spent most of that year uh, finding the two thousand dead and missing soldiers. And there are stories he tells of uh, in his autobiography with might and strength. This is where much of what we're learning tonight is from. His firsthand accounts of uh, his experiences. And he had to go into Egypt uh, to retrieve the bodies after the war. And of course, no one knew the Egyptians were really going to abide by Geneva Conventions and allow that. Uh, In Jordan, they wouldn't let him pass through the main pass point, Uh, so he had to go to a different place that had been mined, and he had to basically jump through a minefield uh, to get there. And he debated all day, he was arguing with them, finally he just jumped from rock to rock and went in, one of many times that he put his life on the line to retrieve the bodies of those who had died. And why was this so paramount? So first of all, the Israeli army's policy of no man left behind the comfort for the family, knowing that their beloved ones were brought back. And most importantly, in Jewish law, if the husband, if it's not, uh, if it's not shown, and proven that the husband passed away, the wife cannot, the widow cannot remarry. So this work was vital. And um, there are times where he talks about how grueling it was emotionally, to do it, others dropped out, but he just persevered. He also was involved in the burials, and this is when they set up Mount Herzl, uh, which was the bur- burial place of Theodor Herzl, the founder of Zionism, became the military cemetery, which it is to this day. And he, uh, I'd like to share with you some of the prayers, some of the uh, words of uh, consolation that he gave to the family. Um, this is what he said to them. Dear parents, how fortunate are you that you merited to raise such children for the Jewish people. It is thanks to them that the state of Israel has risen, and thanks to their pure blood that it was spilled, that we were redeemed and are here today. And the debate came up in 1949 of when to set Memorial Day, the anniversary of uh, the the setting up of the Jewish state, So this was debated for a number of weeks. And finally, it was three days before Yom Ma'ut, before Israel Independence Day celebration. They felt there had to be a memorial before the celebration. And so he established it for that year. The day before Yom Ma'ut, they were going to have a memorial. And then they'd figure out what day it was. And it wasn't planned to be that way. But in the end, of course, as we know, it was kept the day before Yom Ma'ut because Um, For Israelis, it is so significant to link the celebration with also a recognition of the loss, which really permeates every family here. So so that's an important chapter in Jewish history that he had a hand in, along with many others we're going to see. Uh, The first one being setting up the religious standards in the army. Now, uh, there were challenges setting these religious standards. The paratroopers were known to be non-religious. And when he went to the commander, who was none other than Ariel Sharon, he said, what do you, you know, we have standards, you have to impose them. He said, I don't have any religious soldiers. When I get my first religious soldier, I will set standards. I'll allow you to come in and coach through the kitchens. So Rav Goran said, fine, you have your first religious soldier. It's me. I am joining the paratroopers. And he went and he jumped. And he trained and he got his wings. In the first jump, the chief engineer on the plane uh, refused to say almain. Rabbi Gorin had written a special prayer for the, the jump, himself and the others. He recited the prayer, all the soldiers said Amen. The chief officer refused and they all jumped. When he landed, the chief engineer broke his ankle and he went to Rabbi Gorin and said, I was wrong, and I will now make sure all the kitchens are kosher. So uh, Rabbi Gorin actually on his last jump broke his leg as well, but a few weeks later, he was back up and back in action. There are many amazing stories about Rabbi Gorin, but I'd like to focus on the ones that centered around the the main wars. We talked about 48, Uh, 1956, the Sinai Campaign. So uh, a number of six months before, a man came to him, and he said to him, Rabbi, I had a dream. And in the dream, I'm a shofar maker. I'm actually a shofar maker. In my dream, I was told to go to Turkey, buy the horn of a certain animal, which was very large, and make a shofar for you to blow on Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai was in Egypt, and no one had any dream that Israel would have anything to do with it. But sure enough, 1956, Israel took the Sinai Peninsula for the first time. Rav Goran went up on Mount Sinai, blew the shofar, and then Israel wound up giving it back until 1967 when they took it again. Now, in 1967, uh, Rav Goran was in Australia, and there was a shadow of war, so he made plans immediately to fly back, and he said to them, God willing, we should all hear good news, as I will uh, blow the shofar at the Kot. And once again, no one had any idea uh, that Israel would even survive, let alone be in Jerusalem. So when he got back to Israel, he found out that two religious cabinet members were holding up the vote to go to war. That's what uh, Rabin told him. And uh, they tried to bring Ben-Gurion back, who... Uh, as prime minister, and it's a good thing it didn't, he refused because he was totally against war. He said it's gonna be a disaster. Levi Eshkol, the prime minister, made a speech on the radio that was very faltering and morale was down. And then when they asked Rabin, are we gonna win this war? He was, well, we have a chance maybe. So uh, morale was down. Uh, Levi Eshkol was shaky about going to war. And Rabbi Gorin said, I have to see myself what's going on. So he went to the head of the Air Force, who said, Yes, we have a plan. We're going to take out the Egyptian Air Force in the first three hours of the war. He went to the head of the tankers and he said, We're going into uh, crush their forces. We are going to win. He went back to the ministers. He told them they voted for Moshe Dayan to be defense minister, and Dayan was very pro. Uh, moving the war ahead, and they decided to attack. And once again, Rabbi Gorin played a vital role in this milestone in the history of the state of Israel. Um, right before the war, Rabbi Gorin went to the tank brigades on the front lines. He wrote a special prayer for them. He gave them words of encouragement. And as he was driving with, behind the first wave of troops, his troop carrier was hit, Everyone in it was injured except for him. And he was with a Torah scroll. If you look at the graphic for our podcast, you see him carrying his Torah scroll, which he often did. Uh, And he uh, was thrown out of the half track. He found a ditch, dug himself in, covered the Torah scroll, and lay there for almost the entire day of the battle. When the battle was over, he came back to the camp. and Of course, they were rejoiced to see him. Uh, but he never backed off. And he viewed that moment of being saved in that half track. And many others being injured and dying as God's providence, that God was always looking out after him. And he never uh, looked, uh, took, made his own personal safety come first. He was always there on the front lines encouraging the soldiers. And actually, the law of the Jewish king is the Jewish king led the soldiers into not was at the back of the troops. When he heard the front was starting in Jerusalem, he immediately drove there. Uh, he went to Matagor, who was the commander to take the old city. And he said, we have to go into the old city and take it. And Gore said, that's not my orders. And Gora said, and this is a historic occasion. We have to go anyway. And unlike Ariel Sharon, who would uh, take chances and uh, mount offensives even against orders, Matagor would not do it. However, uh, he told him to go to speak to Eshkol. Eshkol was primed to understand that they could take the old city. So when Menachem Begin brought it up to the cabinet, Levi uh, Eshkol was primed and knew that Motagur, the main general in Jerusalem was, was ready to do so. So that morning at eight o'clock, he advanced the Lion Gate with the soldiers. Along the way, they picked up uh, Yossi Ronen recorder for the army radio, and this will be significant. Uh, we'll talk about it in a minute. And as they were running up to Lion Gate, which is in the backside on the western side of the hotel of the Temple Mount, um, there's a long road with two, uh, two uh, stone walls, and the soldiers were hugging the walls, and Rabbi Gorn was in the middle of the street blowing the shofar, and they tried to say, grab him and pull him over, and he didn't care, he was running right down the middle of the street, blowing the shofar, and um, ready to, uh, to take over and liberate the Temple Mount and the Kotel. Uh, they got to the Temple Mount, uh, and he said, come, I want to go with the sappers to clear the dome of the rock of any bombs, because Jews are not allowed into the place where the actual temple was. And he knew this would be the only time he'd have the opportunity to go into the place where the Holy of Holy was. And they went in there. Uh, on the t- side of the Temple Mount, they dove in Mincha, the first prayer service. And then they went to uh, liberate the Kotel. So two of the soldiers found the way path down. They broke open a stone gate and they came to the Kotel and they were crying the famous uh, words through army radio. The Temple Mount is in our hands. And he blew the shofar at the Kotel. And it says that in the Messianic times, the voice of the shofar will go from one end of the earth to the other. How can we understand that? Was this a miraculous occurrence? No, it was uh, through the army radio, it was broadcast and then to the rest of the world. So after 10, 29 years, he was at the liberation of the Temple Mount and the Kotel. Then he moved on to the next place. He moved on to, he drove, started driving south. He went to Kevr the tomb of Rachel, where he had been a few decades before when he'd gone to find, to get back the Jewish bodies. His driver had convinced the Jordanian guard to let him go to the tomb of Rachel. So he knew where it was. He went there and he broke open the door. There was an inner door with a bolt couldn't get it open and all of a sudden the key comes flying in the door. Was this a miracle from heaven? No, it was the gatekeeper who heard them breaking in at midnight and who gave him the key. The Zohar, the book of Jewish mysticism, says that when the Jewish people return to the land of Israel, um, Rachel will say, will, will be told, your sons have returned from the land of their enemy, your sons have returned from their borders. And at midnight, they will come into the tomb of Rachel, which is along the road to Bethlehem. And um, right at midnight, they finally got the key and they opened it up. He established a Jewish presence there and um, took it as liberating the Jewish holy spot. He then moved on to Hebron, where he arrived at one in the morning. And he had studied in the Hebron Yeshiva after the massacre. When they had to flee Hebron, Uh, the British forcibly evacuated uh, all the Jewish survivors in 1929 after the Arabs massacred 65 Jews in Hebron. And so he wanted to be with the first wave of soldiers retaking Hebron. He also felt a very strong connection to Hebron. When he was first married, uh, he and his wife set out on a bus to go visit the of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs. Hebron is the oldest Jewish holy city location in Jewish history. And uh, on the bus, they start to realize that it was very dangerous. And somehow there was a British officer there who uh, helped them, told them where to get off, accompanied them, held his gun out so they could go pray at the grave, brought them back on the bus, went back to Jerusalem with them, even though he was stationed in Hebron and then disappeared. They never saw him again. And Rabbi Goran says, was this a British soldier? Was it an angel? But he always felt a strong connection to this spot. So he's with the first wave of soldiers at 6.30 a.m. going into the town. He finds the reconnaissance unit. They wave him forward. He goes forward, and there's no soldiers. There's no tanks. But what he does see is white sheets hanging from all of the windows of Hebron. No one on the street. And the Arabs were terrified that the Jews would take revenge for the massacre in 1929. And the Jews that were massacred in Gush also was done by Hebron Arabs. And so he drove into the middle of the city. He saw a Jordanian flag. He climbed up onto a building, said Salam Aleikum to the people in the apartment, climbed to the roof, took off the Jordanian flag, went to the police stand in the middle of the square where the police directed traffic, mounted it, shot his machine gun in the air and said, I officially declare Hebron liberated by the Jewish army of the state of Israel and to be part of Israel. And he individually, single-handedly liberated Hebron. Then he moved on to the graves of the patriarchs and matriarchs, a big stone three-story building, same thing, wooden gate, uh, metal gates. He tried to shoot through one unsuccessfully and they call it Rav Gorin's holes on the gate. Uh, And finally, a tank came with a crowbar. They crowbarred the door off the hinges. He entered in there, set up a synagogue, prayed with the soldiers, and established Jewish presence in our original uh, patrimony of the graves of the patriarchs and matriarchs, the place Abraham had bought himself with his own money. And he then went to the mayor who wanted to come to him. And he said, no, we're not surrend- you're not surrendering in this holy spot. And he went to him. The mayor of Hebron was terrified um, that they would all be kicked out. But Rabbi Goran accepted their, um, their surrender. And he, the mayor told him, I was the one who helped the 11 wounded soldiers in the gush who brought them to the hospital. And Rav Goran knew that story to be true. And so uh, he accorded him uh, that wish to be the one who would surrender uh, the town to the Jewish army. And um, Rabbi Gorin says, though, that he wished there had been a battle so that they could have taken and brought justice uh, and revenge to the Arabs who had killed the Jews in 1929. But it was not to be. Um, The history of these holy sites was that Moshe Dayan uh, gave the order to remove the synagogue from this holy Jewish place and to remove the Israeli flag. When Goran heard about it, he went in the middle of the night to Dayan. He called him up. He said, the flag, I don't care about. It's a political symbol, but I'm not removing the synagogue. We are staying in our holy place. And the only thing Rabbi Goran regrets is that he didn't take a stand and make a fuss or the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So sure enough, uh, Moshe Dayan relinquished for Hebron. And to this day, it is shared by Jewish and Muslim worshippers. But the Temple Mount was given over to the Jordanian walk, uh, Muslim officials. As we know, the Temple, the Western Wall, we retained. But Rabbi Goren said he regretted that. And so here we have again him playing a central role in these watershed moments of Israeli history. Afterwards, uh, he became the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, but even then, he still remained the rabbi of the army. In the Yom Kippur War, tragically, when so many Jewish soldiers were dying, he went to the front lines, he went to the Golan, no one was burying the dead, and so he got involved again, and he took over, found other people too, until the regular units came. When they didn't want to bury Bodies on the Shabbat, he ruled that normally, even though one would not, they had to bury the bodies on Shabbat because if the soldiers saw their comrades lying there and dead, they would be demoralized. And so he gave that ruling and took care of that. And uh, as the then he went down south as the soldiers were crossing into the Suez Canal, he asked to um, be able to speak to the soldiers and say a prayer and lift their spirits and his speech was broadcast across all 150, 115 kilometers of the front in the Sinai. And Israel would eventually win the war uh, with the loss of much blood. And Rabbi Gorin, the rest of his years, uh, took an absolute stand on the Jewish heartland, on uh, Jerusalem, Hebron, Judea, and Samaria. He was totally against giving back any land Uh, land for peace, whatever the condition. He was an absolutist about his love for the land, about his belief that Jewish power had to be exercised uh, with the spirit, with the Torah, within the purview and guidelines of the Torah. And he, in a sense, had the role when Jewish armies would go out to war, they would have a high priest anointed for the army. And he played that role, and he saw that the spiritual Well-being of the Jewish people is what would ensure their military victory, the defense of our country, and the well-being of the future of the Jewish state and the Jewish people. So, towering figure, incredible Torah scholar, brave soldier, uh, inspiring leader.